Well, as we come to God's Word, we stand out of reverence for it, and we read it from Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 45. Hear the word of the Lord. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside waiting to speak with him. Someone told him, uh, uh, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak with you? Jesus replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So this morning, I'd like to start off with a bit of a poll, okay? So I want you to raise your hand. Uh, We're not going to leave any denominations today. I want you to raise your hand, and I want to ask you this. Who, if you could, would like a different mother-in-law? Oh, okay, okay. Hey, guys in the tech booth, would you turn the cameras here and we want to do that again? Okay, okay. Did, did my wife raise her hand up there? I don't know. Um, okay, I'll give you a bit easier of a question. Um, raise your hand if you would um, like to keep your current mother-in-law. Oh, who has their mother-in-law here with them watching them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Justin, keep, keep her. She's a good one. Well, you know, family is a funny thing. Family is a funny thing. Uh, on the one hand, we may have a family that is such an incredible place of safety and security that has nurtured and encouraged us. And yet, too, we know family uh, can be traumatic uh, and, and cause struggles that lead to a lifetime of understanding and attempting to uh, reconcile. Uh, family is a funny thing. And then you've got our greater church family, in contrast to our biological family, going on in this passage. Well, here are a couple of insights on family. This one from George Burns. Happiness is having a large, loving, caring, and close-knit family in another city. (laughs) When I tell my kids that I'll do something in a minute, what I'm really saying is, oh, please go away and forget We do that a lot. Siblings, older siblings, the only people who can pick on you for their own entertainment, but beat up anybody else who does. And for you younger siblings, uh, Brooks, if you don't annoy your big sister and brother for no good reason from time to time, they will begin to doubt that you really love them. Irma Bombeck, who remembers Irma, great comedic writer. When your mother asks, do you want a piece of advice? It is a mere formality. She doesn't care. If you want it, you're going to get it anyway. It's funny how your parents tell you it's their house until something needs cleaning. Sam Levinson, the reason grandparents and grandchildren get along is that they have a common enemy. Rita Rudner, Saturday Night Live, said, I love being married. It is so wonderful to find that special person that you will annoy for the rest of your life. 
Jim Carrey, behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes. Family, it makes us smile. Sometimes it makes us cry. Statistics say that 60% of adults report experiencing abuse or some other difficulty in their childhood. 14% of children have some sort of maltreatment by a caregiver. You see on the news, children that are mistreated, it, it, it really strikes me uniquely. 4% experience physical abuse. Young children exposed to five or more significant adverse experiences in their first three years. We, we think they aren't verbal. But in their first three years, it ends up leading to incredible language, emotional, or brain development struggles. So there's the good and the bad. And honestly, I think family is somewhere in between in reality, right? The people that we love the most can sometimes hurt us the most. And so nobody has a perfect family. But I think no matter where you are on that scale, when we come to what Jesus has to say in Matthew 12, I think it takes us all a little back. When he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Don't you know the Virgin Mary was not excited to hear that? Why don't you try that at your next Thanksgiving dinner and see how well it goes over? I mean, it really is sort of shocking that Jesus would say this about the family. I mean, we're, we're supposed to, uh, we're, we're the evangelical Christians, right? We, we support the family unit and, and advocate for it and support it in ministries and in our law. How is it that this principle straight from Christ says, make your discipleship relationships more important, your brother and sister in Christ relationships more important than your kin, It said that blood is thicker than water, and yet Jesus is saying, well, kin comes second. And where I'm from in Georgia, them's is fighting words. Go dogs. You know, would you really uh, go home and say, mom, I love you, but Case Thorpe is more important than you? I don't think that would go over very well. Even in Jesus' day, this would have been as one scholar says, quite repulsive. Uh, In many Jewish uh, families, they would translate in Jesus' day the commandment about honoring one's mother and father as most important, the highest of all the laws. Jesus goes on and says, if you do the will of my father, you are family. That's pretty tough. Now, we're in this sermon series right now looking at the church. What is the church theologically? We've looked at the church at the 30,000-foot level, but friends, I want to bring it home today for what, what, who are these people on your left and right? You can look at them. You can look at them. Do, why do they matter? Why does it matter, as Jesus is saying, look, as disciples, these bonds are to be prioritized that you share with other Christ followers. Now, to put this in a bit of context, this passage comes at the end of chapter 12, and it is at the end of a three-chapter section on discipleship. 
You see, Matthew and also Mark and Luke, they're not so interested in the chronological listing of the events of Jesus' life. Yes, you get birth, death, resurrection, that kind of chronology. But in the preaching and teaching portion of Jesus' life, what they do as writers is what I like to call the post-it note theory. So they take all that they have heard in and through the Christian community. This is about 30 years later, about 60 AD, that the Gospels get written. And they hear a parable, write it down on a post-it note. They hear a teaching, write it down on a post-it note. They know of an incident that Jesus encounters or a conversation with the Pharisees. And it's as if they're sitting at their desk and all these post-it notes are sitting around. And Matthew is going, what does the church today need? It's a young, growing movement, okay? We need encouragement on discipleship. What did Jesus have to say about that? And so he takes all those incidences on discipleship and puts them together. And we realize Matthew's writing is much a ministry manual as he is recording the life of Jesus. So you move through chapter 10, 11, and 12. What do we learn about discipleship? Well, it begins with the sending out of the 12. We learn you need to go two by two. The kingdom of God will be near. Travel lightly. Search for a worthy person. And if they there don't want anything to do with you, wipe your uh, hands and feet and move on. Be courageous. Be on guard. These are lessons for you and me as we love one another and partner in this ministry thing as disciples. And then in chapter 11, John the Baptist's disciples come and there is a lesson there. And what's so cool to me is Jesus doesn't claim his disciples' success all for himself, but he shares the successes and he shares the credit. He gives out this woe to the hard cities that reject his disciples. And we learn that Jesus is both wisdom giver and a great place of rest. Because I know in my discipleship with you, I need wisdom, I need teaching, and I need rest because it gets weary. Well, Jesus even demonstrates this better as he withdraws to the, the, a silent, quiet place in chapter 12 to be recharged. He addresses how we are also to command demons, but it's wrong to force miracles. And then we get to this passage, that blood is not thicker than water. The water's a baptism that we are to live out this particular Christian principle. But yet, sorry friends, there's a problem. And that problem I've already alluded to, it's that first uh, jump in you and me that this is really hard to swallow. That, that favor we show to our blood relatives well, I mean, it is, some would argue, essential to being human. The philosophers claim this. Social scientists claim that it is essential to being a human that we, unlike other animals, some do, but we particularly cling to blood relatives. The philosophers write about this extensively as they look at what is truly human. It is one to be in community or in family, community, in the nation state. Plato says this, thus the man in Homer who is reviled for being without society, without law, without family, such a one must naturally be of a quarrelsome disposition. 
and as solitary as the birds. You know, they had no, uh, they, they didn't care for the lone rangers or the hermits. And, and we kind of do that too, right? If somebody just goes off to live in the woods for six months, we're like, ooh, a little strange. Well, anthropologists and sociologists, they have a term for what we have. It's, and the term they use is kinship. The unique nature of kinship with humans. Kinship maintains unity and harmony and cooperation among relationships. It guides communication. It sets marital taboos. It regulates behavior. It's a watchdog, particularly in rural societies or in tribal situations. Kinship lays down obligations to one another. Property transition and political rule. So I hear the social scientists saying, well, this is part of who we are, Jesus. Your your standard isn't going to work. And I hear it, you hear it, in individuals who are single or single again, whether by choice or not, that longing for a spouse, that longing for someone to walk life with and share things together. We experience this longing uh, when a child is an orphan, and, but yet you see those memes online when a child is told you're being adopted and coming into our family. That's that human longing. We've got about a dozen families in this church who adopt, have adopted. And I have such high regard for those individuals because that to me is the hardest, most uh, intense way to build the kingdom. And when you lose a parent or a loved one in the family, and whether that experience with that relative has been traumatic and abusive, or whether it's been a fantastic one, there's an emotional response and reaction. So friends, you know, Jesus sets this principle, but it is really difficult And we can agree, you know what? Sorry, Jesus, but blood is thicker than water. Well, here's our hope. Our hope in the gospel of Christ. First off, Jesus actually demonstrates this very principle he's asking of us. There are, we find about 21 biological relationships of Jesus in the gospels. Did you know that? I had never realized that till studying this, and I didn't get a whole list. I'd love to go search and find these, but there's Zechariah and Elizabeth, cousins. There's Jesus' crazy cousin, John the Baptist. Yeah, you know, even Jesus had a crazy cousin. Um, There's Uncle Zebedee and Aunt Salome. Uh, Jesus has brothers and sisters. So he is well-rooted in biological family. He grew up in an environment in which, just like our Thanksgivings and Christmases, you had the stress and the weirdness and the, but then you had grandma and you had grandpa and you had goodness and support. Now, D.A. Carson, a scholar, reminds us of this. Jesus' searching question in its remarkable answer in no way diminishes his mother and brothers, but simply give priority to his father in doing his will. Okay, so don't hear me today saying, look, you need to eschew 
family relationships on earth. No, no. We are to value and treasure what we have and build and search for our own informing family, but are writing that priority. And his disciples, as those living on mission together for his kingdom, to keep the Father's will first and foremost. Second hope that we have is we see that Jesus' life was solely focused on serving his Father's will. John 14, 31, but so that you in the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commands me. Matthew 26, 39, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face praying, saying, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. You know the rest. Yet not as I will, but as you will. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I kept my father's commandment and I abide in his love. So Jesus was squarely about the father's will. Okay, what's the father's will? Oh my goodness, as a pastor, I probably get that question more often. Case, here's the situation. What does God want me to do? And, and I, I pull out my phone and I do a little Googling and I'm like, well, this is what you need to do. no. Or I go and pick up my hotline to heaven. Well, you know, Jesus says that, no. Okay, so what is the Father's will? Friends, it is, as we've been saying again and again, living on mission as a part of God's work of redemption and restoration in the world. Now, that's a lot of fancy words. What does it mean day to day with the person on your left and the person on your right? We talked about the four chapter narrative of the Bible, creation, fall, was it Genesis 3.15 that God's work of redemption to redeem this world of its brokenness begins. And he chooses a people, our covenant ancestors, the Jews, not because they're special, but because Abram demonstrated faithfulness, not to exclude the rest of the world's people, but to have a demonstration of how is it you walk with your God. He gives them the law, the prophets, the covenants, the turning point of human history with Jesus on the cross and then the birthday of the church at Pentecost. And then you and I are invited into this work of fixing things, of caring for the homeless, of reaching out to the orphan and the widow, of caring for your neighbor, of showing love, of building the kingdom in and through your career and your workplace. That's the Christian life that our God calls it to. That's the Father's will. And so that person on your left and that person on your right, we are locked arm in arm, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, to be co-laborers with God. We are co-laborers with one another. And that's why we need each other. I need you. I hope you need me. But we need each other to do the Father's will, as Jesus even demonstrates in his own walk. And third, we see hope in Jesus because now follow this. Jamie's gonna love this. Jesus is the second Adam, okay? So the first Adam, before the fall, walking with our God in Eden, without shame, talking with our God. So if that's the first Adam, and scripture says that Jesus is the second Adam, and we are to become Christ-like over the course of our Christian lives. Friends, we are actually... By becoming like Christ, embracing the purity and the goodness of the first Adam, and we are becoming more essentially human. Not the anthropologist version of what is a human or the sociologist definition of what is a human. But by becoming Christ-like, 
By becoming more like the second Adam, we are journeying to become like the first Adam. So yeah, okay, Jesus, I'm, I'm getting that greater sense of why you do call me to prioritize the relationships that help me to live out your mission in this world. Well, you also get, friends, supernatural help to do it. Because I'm not Jesus, you're not Jesus. He had that whole divine thing going on. And so how do we do this? It's like the final Jeopardy question. So the screen pops up, Holy Spirit. The question is, what is the fuel and the enabler to live on God's mission and to help prioritize godly relationships over blood family? The Holy Spirit is the one. And so if you're in this room, well, you are in this room and you are online, um, I don't just see columns and banners and lights and a beautiful stained glass window and a guitar. I do see those things, but I have glasses of spiritual perspective on and the Holy Spirit is moving around in here. And it's like an animated spark of a light. You know, the the star that Tinkerbell does over the castle at Disney movies. I mean, the Holy Spirit, friends, is this physiological true thing that is working in and around in us. So if you are in Christ, you have confessed faith in him, that Holy Spirit indwells you. And what it does is it helps us to move past the broken family unit of this world. Because you see, the reason we cling to family and blood, anthropologists and sociologists, is because we know we need security. We know we need safety. We know it's a scary world out there. And so I'm gonna cling to those first folks who feed me and teach me. And, and, and the anthropologists will say, well, you know, cavemen came together because they needed a spouse in order to fight off the animals and to divide the labor with the kids. So it's the brokenness of this world that does lead us to try to cling to those family units for the sharing of property and maybe even the ugliness of dwelling on a one-day inheritance. But yet it's the Holy Spirit, friends, that comes in to whatever biological family you may have and does two things. Number one, he is the healer when there is that brokenness. It is the Holy Spirit who can heal your heart and change those family members that have been so hurtful. I'm always surprised when people say, well, they can't change. And I ask, do you believe in the resurrection? Well, of course I do. Why can you believe Jesus rose from the dead, but God can't change that very difficult family member? It's the Holy Spirit, friends, that does the healing, but where there is good, strong, beautiful family, Katie, oh, it's that fuel and enabler for us to then go and form families like that ourselves. Because friends, it is the family unit in the Garden of Eden that is one of God's primary mechanisms to exert his mission in the world. So we don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we want family to have its rightful place. Second, the Holy Spirit is that fuel enabler to keep us on mission. 
to keep us motivated to move forward into this world. It is that Holy Spirit that creates in us this hunger for Scripture so that we'll be in a Bible study or go to a class in order to understand God's call better and his work in our lives. It is that fuel that leads us to want to be in corporate worship that then I can be uh, encouraged and I can bear witness by my worship to God to my brothers and sisters on my left and on my right. When I doubt, it's most when I'm in an airport because I look at all those crazy people from all those different places and I think, this this Jesus stuff really is real. But when I come in this room and I see the mark of God on all of you, when I hear the stories of God at work, it is the Holy Spirit, friends, that enables us to do that hard work with vulnerable populations and those in great suffering, to be in the hospitals, to be there when families have lost someone. Now you may think, and and I get it, well, Case, I just don't have those motivations. Like, I'd love to love the Bible, but it's just, you know, it's not my thing. Well, with all due respect, I would challenge you. How much time are you spending with the Lord and asking the Holy Spirit to motivate, to draw, to change? Because it's not just some snap of the fingers that these things naturally develop. It's actually in the doing that the being gets changed. D.A. Carson also says, we do not make ourselves close relatives by doing the will of the heavenly father. Rather, doing the father's will identifies us as mothers, sisters, and brothers. Don't hear me telling you, do more, do more, do more. Don't leave here with a guilt trip that, well, I just, uh." no. It's in the doing that the being and the bonds are deepened and the Holy Spirit flows even more richly and powerfully. Holy Spirit, friends. Now, you may know, in closing, next October, we're hosting the General Assembly for the World Reform Fellowship, a global body. And what I love about moments like that, and maybe you've felt it when you go abroad on a mission trip, I mean, There is that instant bond. And it's because of that Holy Spirit working through the global church. Well, this week I was on a Zoom meeting to prepare and um, Rick Canada, retired chancellor of Reformed Seminary, said, you know, Case, we say blood is thicker than water. But Jesus redirects us to say, it's the waters of baptism that is thicker than blood. It's the waters of baptism that are thicker than blood. So it's the waters of baptism that unite me with your gifts. Mentoring and Steve and Buzz and Topper. Collegial relationships. The beautiful older ladies in this church that love on me with Miss Garbrick's pound cake and phone calls and concern. It's the longevity of having raised kids with others in this church when we know our kids' stories from preschool to now and we can understand why the next steps they may take, they're taking. Next Sunday, as we get ready for this baptism renewal Sunday, 
I want to challenge you, if you have been baptized, pull out a memento this week from that occasion. Maybe it's a baptismal certificate or a gown from that day or a letter from the pastor at that time and spend some time with the Lord with that item and reflect on what it means, how it shaped your life trajectory, how it will continue. And friends, if the Lord's calling you and you are ready to come and to bind yourselves with the relationships in this room, baptism is an option next week. Thank you, Jesus, for calling us his disciples to be so bound by your Holy Spirit. Let us pray.